Welcome to Single Malt History with Gareth Russell, pouring out your serving of pure, distilled, intoxicating, and occasionally delicious history. Hello and welcome to the last episode in season one of Single Malt History with Gareth Russell. I'll be taking a break for August and the start of September to finish work on the manuscript of my next book about the people, politics, passions and prejudices that flourished at Hampton Court over the centuries. Thank you so much to everyone who's been so supportive, <clears throat> including through my recent spell of dry throat as I read that, and encouraging of the project, but also of this podcast, the feedback for which and support for which have just blown my mind and touched my heart. In this season, I've covered the sinking of the Titanic, the attack on the Lusitania, 17th century India, 6th century Anatolia, and 20th century Russia. We've had guests covering allegedly murderous countesses, gastronomically gifted diplomats, sexually fluid Scottish kings, and seances and cults in Jazz Age Belfast. That was a shameless plug for our past episodes. But I'll get back to thanks and a tease of what's ahead in season two after today's interview, because who else would do for the season finale but my absurdly talented friend and guest, Nichelle Tramble Spellman, the creator and showrunner of the hit Apple TV Plus series. Truth Be Told, which starred the sublime Octavia Spencer and Aaron Paul in season one. Season two debuts August 20th and stars Octavia Spencer alongside Kate Hudson. Truth Be Told's debut episode, Monster, won Michelle the NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Writing in a Series, which brings us to the fact that she's also the author of two books, The Dying Ground and The Last King, as well as previously working as a producer and writer on The Good Wife, Justified, Snowfall, and many others. But we are here today to talk about something which we have previously only cackled at over lunch, our shared love of historical fiction and the frights we give our teachers. Michelle, thank you so much for coming on Single Malt History. I'm very excited for this episode. I'm so glad to be here. I think that our lunch during season one, when I was under tremendous stress, <laughs> being a new showrunner on a new show, launching on a new network, was such a delight. I think that everyone was looking for me that day when we finally parted. Right. There were so many text messages and emails and phone calls like, where does she disappear to? And the two of us were on that pad, that sunny patio, laughing our heads off. Yeah. <laughs> it's the I first remember, time we met. <laughs> I remember being taken like through the studio and it's so sort of like official and formal. And I thought, gosh, they must think that I'm coming here to discuss really serious matters. <laughs> and then I just <laughs> cackled over the lot for about... <laughs> two hours like some sort of demented banshee like it really was um it was a, it was a glorious sunkissed day and in fact I do sort of look back on the lunch and think oh yeah, particularly after COVID and you just think that oh, was such a perfect afternoon oh it was so nice and we sat there and we laughed and laughed and then I came out and uh my assistant <laughs> was like careening around the corner on a <laughs> from one of the coming from the soundstage it's like everyone's looking for you and I was like oh it's over I watched you depart into the sunset and I was like oh want to go with him that was really really nice and we met because I kind of low-key stalked you on social media right yes I think it was yes you did (laughs) Uh 
<laughs> no. Um, no, I think. Uh, <laughs> I read your book and I loved it. I read the Catherine Howard book and I loved it so much. And then I'm just going along on Instagram and I think that you were following someone else I followed and I said, oh, there's the author. So I clicked through, looked at your page, and then I sent you a little bit of a fan note. You sent a really uh, nice message. Yeah. yeah. And actually I still, when I'm trying to, you know, harvest cool points i like to tell people that the book was on set in truth be told I'm like, it, it was, there. It, yeah. was. <laughs> it was season one i think yeah. that we got a really good shot of it too so you i did. had like yeah the <laughs> i didn't freeze it. <laughs> <laughs> that's so great and you know i think that we had um i think your publisher said no i think they said that we could only show show the spine but not Stop the cover it. did they Yes, we had that with a couple of books and we never understood why set deck, you know, had to reach out to get permission for, you know, anything that was uh, shown on camera. And so there were of the maybe 15 books that I had planted all over the set. um, There were about four that they were like, well, there was a couple that were like, no. (laughs) And then there were a couple that were like, just show the spine. You can't show the cover. And I, I didn't adhere to that. And that made no sense to me. I didn't, think that, I didn't think that the authors would appreciate it because it's a no, chance I'm, to I, like... I'm sitting here in a very, very polite silence. Because <laughs> yes. that is that is surprising to me. Um, yeah, we heard it more than once. So, you know, those full sure. cover shots. I started out as a novelist and I would have loved if that happened. Yeah. So I was just like, forget it. We're bypassing <laughs> So now they're all going to go scrambling through season one to look for the images. Oh my God. Um, Zero sense. (laughs) Ah, Okay. Well, and also just an aside note, Octavia Spencer is so good. She's great. Yeah. It kind of, do you know when, I mean, you're surround, I mean, I'm so, so lucky to be surrounded by talented people, but sometimes you're watching someone and you're like, I, I'm intrigued. Talk me through where this level of talent comes from. It just, it really does, some, it it perplexes me um, because she's she has this, I mean, first of all, she's one of the people that, I don't know if you have this with any actors, but their voice is just so good. Yeah. That, I mean, honestly, if, if Octavia Spencer said, I'm going to read you the phone book, I'm like, I'm going to pull up a chair. <laughs> She's such a wonderful actress and a mm-hmm. really, really lovely woman. And she has this really beautiful speaking voice. So, yeah, was, yeah. you know, when she's in character, it's great. But whenever she's reading, you know, her dialogue for the podcast, it's so mm-hmm. soothing. I think that she could do a podcast and she's a real true crime um, fan oh, in real life. Huge. That's why we connected on this show. Okay. So when we met, I was attached to the project. And then um, at the time my, I was, we were at the same agency and they put her forward and I was like, she's interested in doing TV. I mean, yeah, of course I would. (laughs) Are you kidding? And so I wore black on our first meeting because I said to my husband, I'm going to sweat through all my clothes. Because I was so nervous. So I wore like just layers of black. So whatever was happening with me was my secret. We just had this really great meeting. So she came in and, you know, we talked about the book and then 
I said offhandedly, I said, oh, yeah, at Christmas time, it's so not Christmas. But my sisters and I all watch snapped marathons on Christmas Day about these women that murder their spouses sure. or their boyfriends or whatever. And she started laughing and she said, so do I. And then we went down the rabbit hole of all the um, true right. crime things that we watch. And so we connected from there and it was just a joy. So I never wrote a single word of the show without her in mind because she was there from the beginning. Oh, that's so, so yeah. that's incredible. She's, she's the the perfect number one on the call sheet. She's just wonderful. And then this season, season two that comes out on August 20th, Kate Hudson, an absolute dream. We called ah. her Sunflower on set. Oh that must be so I mean look it, I can imagine I mean on a much smaller scale there was uh, like an adaptation of I started out with novels as well. There were sort of young adult comedies, but when you got an actor who could nail the character, it was so exciting. And I think, is it, did you have, so you have like Octavia Spencer in mind um, from the get-go. And mm -hmm. I think that's an equally special relationship when you, you have this person that you're crafting the words for. I just think it, you know, any writer I've spoken to who's done that has always said it creates something really, really special. Yeah. It really does. It made me want to write specifically for actors going forward. Cause you know, mm -hmm. usually I, I have this vague imaginary character in my mind and that comes from, you know, starting out writing books and short stories. Right. But now when I'm doing a, you know, a script, a feature or a TV pilot, I just want to know who this person is and just imagining that actor or actress is so much better. So I said to my agents, you know, I would love to be known as the, the screenwriter that writes specifically for actresses. And, mm. um, and, you know, I don't think that's a bad place to be because creating for Octavia and then, you know, in season one, um, Lizzie Kaplan and Alan Bell, Annabella Shiora and Elizabeth Perkins. And then in this two, this season, Kate Hudson, and then the two women that play her sisters, Hanifa and um, Tracy Toms, it's just, I think that's my sweet spot. So hopefully, Knockwood, I'm lucky enough to do that going forward. That's incredible. I mean, and that's also, I think as a writer, finding a groove or a spot or something that just really works for you is really magical. It, it, it feels great when you find it. Yeah, it is. It's like all the puzzle pieces sort of start to snap together. And right. Malcolm, my husband, is a uh, writer also. And we talk about that all the time. He just finished up. Um, Falcon and Winter Soldier and the series was great and well received but I think what he did some of the um, monologues that he had for the actors I was watching him craft that and it was really special because he knew who he was writing for and um, he just had a ball with it but it's it's just it just takes it to, to a different level if you know the artist that you're creating mm -hmm. for I agree I think that that's just, I mean, that just sounds so rewarding as well. Absolutely. Um, and to pivot from a uh, surprisingly uh, worthwhile conversation for us both to have with each other um, to guilty pleasure reading. Uh. Uh, <laughs> which I think is, that was the story that broke the ice between us at the lunch. That was that was sort of like a, a Soviet icebreaker. 
<laughs> you know, sort of plugs through the Arctic and turns off. It's like all very polite and oh, the, the studios. I wanted to how fantastic to be here. And then I think it was you that um, started by was sort of talking about slightly pulpy, trashy historical fiction. Yeah, um, that I still love. Still. Uh, love. I love it. And in fact, do you know, I can't remember which historian said this. It was so long ago, but I think it was a professor that told me that that this this had been said, but that sometimes from the kind of the the non the historian's perspective, the better written the book, the more problematic. So, you know, things like um a Tale of Two Cities or A Man for All Seasons or Wolf Hall are so well written that it takes a lot to dislodge that as a realistic um, portrayal of the past. But oh, wow. Well, yeah, well, because it, yeah, and I think... I could see that. Yeah, it's... it's mm-hmm. It took a long... It will, it will take a long time for Thomas Cromwell not to be seen as Hilary Mantel imagines him. It took a long time for Thomas More not to be seen the way uh, Robert Holt imagined him. Right. And... Um, but... Uh, and if it, and also I think if there's a romance in it, it usually pulls people in even more. But I, but when it is a really, like I mean, just bodice ripping nonsense, I think it's wildly entertaining, and it doesn't really bother me. I mean, even things like the Three Musketeers, which I which I love as a book, it is what nonsense. I love it. Absolutely right. love. A, a, I actually have to say, I love a swashbuckling book. I love a really good, you know, plots and it's life or death if Anne of Austria can get two of her 12 diamond uh, studs back. I'm, <laughs> Cardinal Richelieu is planning to more or less like sink the marriage over this. There's the possibility of war with England. Love it. Yes. I absolutely love it. You know, I think it was the what drew me in is that it felt like an extension of the stories that my mom or dad would read to me when I was small, you know, like the, you know, they're going out and they're having an adventure and they're doing this and there's danger and there's a crush somewhere in there. And then I moved from those sort of um, elementary novels to the historicals and the bodice rippers of my preteens. It was all of a piece. And I didn't really know interesting in most, most of the, yeah, most of the, you know, wild sex stuff went over my head because I was just <laughs> like, well, that doesn't make sense. No one does that. This is part of the story. Put your clothes on. It's cold. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you just like go through the book and then, you know, not until the books got taken away from me and adults read them where they were like, what is yes. this? You know? <laughs> And everyone blew their fuses. And I'm like, what? She's a pirate. And some stuff <laughs> happens, but it's okay. She's a pirate. You know, so, that was kid logic. But it was just something so, so um, warm and comforting about it. And I think that Malcolm and I had been together. We've been together almost 30, 30 years. And I think we've been together almost 15 before he realized how deeply entrenched I was into, you know, hardcore romance novels, mm-hmm. bodice rippers, mm-hmm. especially the stuff from the seventies, eighties yep. and early nineties. And we'd gone away to Palm Springs for one Christmas and his mom and his aunt, all these you know, people were with us. And I was curled up in this white chair. I'll never forget. And I just <laughs> had all these, this whole <laughs> series. 
And each cover was more salacious than the last. And his mom, who's, you know, French and um, very sophisticated, she says, well, that's, that's a choice. (laughs) And I'm I'm not apologizing apologizing Uh, for it. This is Christmas. You know, let's all be merry. This is my choice. (laughs) (laughs) What's they're like, what's going on with these books? And I'm like, this, this is my heart's desire. This is the same as the soap operas that I love. This is what it is. Well, you know, this kind of brings me to my second point, because this is, I think, in terms, this wasn't so much the icebreaker as the global warming off the ice at, at the <laughs> lunch, but it was the the books that sort of, you know, when you're at that preteen stage, I think and anyone who's sort of a historical fiction geek like we were has gone through that phase where you you probably read novels that you shouldn't have been reading. Yes. Um, but but <laughs> but you could because they were historical fiction. And my my I remember once I was like 12 or I think 12 or 13, but I had borrowed a book from the local library by Jean Plady. And it was called The Pleasures of Love. Mm-hmm. And my father <laughs> saw me reading it and said, come here. <laughs> <laughs> what is that book about? And <laughs> oh, my God. I said, I said, it's about Catherine of Braganza. <laughs> and dad said, I don't know who that is. What is the book about? And luckily, so Catherine Braganza, for for listeners who, she's a fairly obscure queen. She was a Portuguese princess who married King Charles II of Britain in 1662. He was a very prolific womanizer, but she was a very chaste, Catholic, very religious quite conservative figure and actually thank goodness this novel despite the pleasures of love title was the most beige thing i'd I'd read in about a year so when dad took it to check he was like okay it's actually very boring Um, (laughs) and the next book i read was and i actually i there's still a copy um sort of in the the marathon sort of leviathan book boxes I have and I I hunted it out to try to because I vaguely remember this passage and I was going to assume you know what was a bit shocking at 14 won't be shocking now to find the passage to read it for you there's no way I could read this on air but it was was a a novel called Taj by the Sri Lankan author Colin De Silva and it's about the building of the Taj Mahal and the politics around Shah Jahan's reign and there is a scene when Nur Jahan wholly fictitiously commits what I can only describe as aggressive adultery <laughs> with, uh, <laughs> with, with a general. And I thought it couldn't be that shocking. I would, this, this show would be, I couldn't, I actually, first of all, don't think I could bring myself to say those <laughs> words in public. But you, yeah, like you look back at some of those books, it's, it's the, um, it's the two Fs. We'll call them, though, for, for propriety's sake, uh, sex and fighting. Um, but it, it's the two levels of visceral that historical fiction goes into in a way that I don't know other, I mean, particularly the sex stuff. I don't think other, most other genres go into it in the way that, um, like, good, bad historical fiction does. 
Yeah. You know, there's just something that is, I call the other books bloodless. They just, they don't have a pulse at all. And there's just something about the wildness of the storytelling, the writing, the prose that makes you feel like, all right, we're just all in for some good fun. (laughs) You know what? No one's, no one's agonizing over, I don't know if this would make sense. This is wild enough that we're just going to roll with right. it. And, you know, you're so right about rereading something. And it's just like, you know, blushing to my toes because now I finally understand it. Right. When I read it, when I was, you know, 12 or 13, I was just like, oh, I guess they're doing gymnastics in this scene. Because I'm not sure what's happening here. You know? That's a 9.2. Sure. Yes. yes. <laughs> I, everyone seems to be happy with the performance. But was, yeah, I did. Those Russian judges, though. Yes. yes. <laughs> you know, I didn't quite get it. And then you read it later and it's like, oh, my goodness. And the yeah. book that, that got me in that same kind of trouble was um, it, again and again with this author. But she's my favorite um, old school his uh, romance novelist. And that's um, Bertrice Small. I think she passed away about five or six years ago. But, you know, she has a million books, a few different series, and those were the ones that, like, set me on the path. And the first one was The Caden. And I forgive me if I'm mispronouncing that, but, you know, it was a harem romance. And so you can imagine what took place in that. And I didn't, I didn't get the majority of it. <laughs> This woman, this Scottish woman was on this grand adventure in San Lorenzo and then she gets kidnapped and then she gets sold into a harem and, you know, love affairs and her friendships with the three women in the harem. And I was just enchanted. I just thought there was nothing better than this. And, um, And my mom was like, what is that? And then she read it and she was like, do you understand what's happening here? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, she got kidnapped and then she's over here and they're holding her hostage, but she's falling in love. And she's like, well, what about this scene right here? What do you think is happening here? And I said, oh, yeah, I, th- I think that's the gymnastics. You know, <laughs> She also does gymnastics in this, this harem. <laughs> this Scottish kidnap victim is one of literature's great all-rounders. Right, right. <laughs> She can work her way to the top of the Ottoman Empire through her friendships, and she also can do a triple axel look uh, on her days off. Yes, she's amazing, Mom. She's amazing. So yeah, it was it was so much of that, and then because I remember reading them and like the you know the warmth of the family, everybody's together, my little sisters, and you know this you know the nostalgia of of childhood and never kind of went away. So whenever I reread any of the books, it's almost rereading for that moment and that feeling and that comfort and safety. It was like the moment in time where everything was all right. You know, your parents were taking care of your world and your life. So I, what happened in that, um, that Christmas in Palm Springs, I started rereading the whole series. It was the first Christmas after my mom had passed away. And, you know, it took me about a year to put together that that's what was happening. And now it's just mm. a tradition. There's just something really nice about it. That's, but yeah, that's I have really, such that's a really nice. Yeah. Well, also that's, that's kind of quite similar to food, isn't it? I think people yes. have, yes, uh, there's a brilliant uh, podcast table manners where they sort of get celebrities and um, different people over to their a mother and daughter team and they cook for them and they talk over, uh, over, you know, a good dinner, but quite interestingly, a, a friend of mine, 
did it. And when they were talking about, you know, what would your last meal be or what's the meal that means a lot? Her choices were all ones that had kind of memories to her childhood. And I think we oh, all yeah. have, don't we have that thing where you, you, you know, you, you can't, it, I mean, you can't expl- explain it. This, you know, you have a Southern heritage. You'll probably be as aghast at this story as they were. But I um, <laughs> I was down for Thanksgiving in Mississippi and um, was there for, I think, maybe a week. I spent some time in Tennessee as well. But, <laughs> but they said, would you like some grits? And I said, look, <laughs> I said, look do you know, actually, it's the one bit of Southern food I don't like. Like, really, honestly, pretty much, I don't know how I... In fact, I don't think I did. Uh, my clothes and I had a much more aggressive confrontational relationship <laughs> with each other after I left Mississippi. Like I, 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 I ate all of it. Um, but I said, like, I don't, I don't, I don't. Um, you know, and you know, this is. I thought nothing of having biscuits and chocolate gravy for breakfast, and thought nothing. That was the best moment of my life. But I said, look, grits, grits, are like the one thing, the one bit of southern food I don't really like. And the person who was hosting us that weekend said, you know, have, have you, have you tried them? (laughs) Because they obviously just assumed. And I said, and and just imagine what level of stupid I have to be (laughs) to say this sentence to a Southern woman. Yeah, I tried them in New York and I didn't. Oh, like no. Them. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm offended for her. Oh, my God. I'm having heart palpitations. I lo- even as I said, I, was, I said, I-, I barely finished the sentence. I was like, I'm so sorry. I would love some grits. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the dumbest thing I could think. I mean, I've tried it. I've tried it in New York. Come on. <laughs> it's so true. We had a. Um, the memories with food we had, um, I started this, uh, this weight loss program and I'm working and doing, you know, the diet and everything else. And it was really not that bad. And I wasn't having an issue. Mm. And I thought, Oh, I'll miss the pizza or I'll miss pasta. Sure. And the only thing that I missed ferociously was toasted white bread with butter and jam. And I could oh. not understand why this was like waking me up at night and it's all I wanted. And so right. My sister, who I'm totally close to, we were out on a walk and she said, well, that's how mom used to wake us up. And we would sit on the floor and she sit on the couch and comb our hair. And we like, we're between her knees there and we're eating our toast. So she would, that's the smell that woke us up in the morning. She'd come in and then we'd sit there. And I was like, oh, oh my course. goodness, of course. But so that's it really was, sweet, but that's also, it, that's so interesting that that, for, isn't it interesting though, that your sister had that very clear memory and she yes. had more of like the sort of the sensory. Yes. Um, people in the South are just some of the most hospitable and wonderful people. And also I think, and you'll know this, I mean, obviously it, it's something that's fam- really familiar to you, but I think there's a, there is something in Southern culture that I particularly love that they weave food into it in such a way that there is kind of, there is a very clear understanding of how it can bring people together um, and the memories that you can create around that. Oh, it's so true. And so I grew up in um, Northern California, but my, my grandparents, my family, they're all from Louisiana. So I talk about this in the book a little bit. And, um, you know, uh, whenever I'm in discussion, 
the we were in Northern California in the San Francisco Bay Area, but within the walls of my grandparents' house, it was the South. And right. it was, you know, so I had those expressions. That was the food. And I remember being teased in elementary school because I used such Southern expressions in this, you know, ur- urban environment. And all of my grandparents had come to um, California and during the war to work in like the shipyards and canneries mm-hmm. and everything, but they came with maybe 20 other families. So the entire community was Southern. So even if I wasn't in my grandparents' house and we went to a friend's house or someone and we refer to Louisiana as home, I never lived there. So I have this very like Southern sensibility for the food and the storytelling that goes around food. And that oral history of storytelling is what I think sparked me on the reading journey. And then as a writer, just trying to, that was such currency in the family to be able to hold everyone's attention with a great, well-told story. So it was like, I feel like it's all of a piece in this very um, informal way. That's, I mean, first of all, in terms of uh, crafting a story, you have just tied up both themes perfectly of this conversation. (laughs) Well done. Well done. Um, But um, you're right. That that is such an interesting thing, because actually I can remember, you know, when we were talking and you said that, you, you know, you had a lot of Southern relatives that did kind of tally with me, because I think there is something about the South that is there are different cultures, obviously, and they yeah. have, but there, there are different, there's something about different, different cultures across the world, I think, tell stories in a different way. But there are some places that I don't know what it is. They lend themselves to stories. And I think yeah. the South is one. There's, there's a, there's a sense of um, uh, holding the room with a, with a really well-told anecdote or... Yeah. Sometimes it's a it's a you know it's an in-depth joke, or sometimes it's a story. But there is, I mean, I certainly noticed it. And I and I noticed it. I mean, I've been to the South quite a few times and I I I can really see the appreciation. They listen a lot to each yeah. other when they tell a good story. There's it's a very listening culture when they when you know when they're sitting down sort of telling stories about it. It's just, I mean, it's it, that's wonderful. And that is also that would you know, when you become as you have a storyteller, it, it's it's a great um heritage and background to have because it's sort of it, it you get better with each new story you tell i think if you the longer you've been telling them and the, just the way that it's you know woven in and i've told this story before but my grandmother was a master storyteller and she was really good because she had this very um easy breezy sort of conversational tone but mm. her specialty was horror so really Yes. And so she loved a good ghost story, you know, the Southern ghost story, this very Gothic thing, but she would always pull you in, in a very random way. And you fell for it every time because (laughs) she would like, she's talking, she's moving around the kitchen and she was a very, um, very dynamic woman. She was always almost six feet tall and she wore high heels and, you know, she did the white gloves and, and dresses all the time. So she was this, this wonderful homemaker. And I'm already obsessed. I mean, the image is just, I mean, <laughs> Oh, she was great. Wait till you, yeah. there's a picture of her. There's a picture that I love because she was always the center of attention and it's a family wedding. And in the formal portrait, she's standing between the bride and the groom in the <laughs> wedding. <laughs> 
<laughs> if anybody knew how to pull focus, it was her. That's, I, that's, that's not even subtle. Like, that's not like. <laughs> no, not one bit. And everybody was so used to it. But you know, she'd move it around the kitchen and setting the table and doing this. And then she'd snap her fingers and go, oh, oh, I meant to tell you the other day when I ran. Remember when you had me go to the store? I need to pick up the steak, blah, blah, blah. My granddaddy would go, yeah. And she goes, yeah. so then I saw so-and-so. And she's telling this benign story about going to the grocery store. So I'm listening as a kid and doing whatever, and the whole family's listening. And then somehow or another on the way home, there was a ghost in the back seat and <laughs> you went off the road and then you were stuck in the woods. And she always pulled you in with this a grocery run or going to the post office. Yep. And you think that she's just telling something small and then the hairs in the back of your neck are standing up and you're terrified. She was so good at that. And that's one of my you know fondest memories. So growing up and trying to match that on the page was sort of what I've been aiming for this entire, my entire career. That's, I mean, the, I was so surprised when you said horror because actually, I mean, you, by the way, yeah, we're all familiar with that scene in um, uh, television shows of, you know, ghost stories around the mm-hmm. campfire. And I never had that. And I could never imagine, <clears throat> pardon me. I could never imagine someone who could tell a horror story and kind of pull you in. That was always something that I just couldn't imagine. So that's maybe the maybe the key is to settle it in a breezy, mundane right. setting and then just flip. And then your it's world. all of a sudden it's chilling. And I think about, yeah. you know, there's um it's 70s parenting was such a free-for-all and so freestyle. And so, you know, the <laughs> things that we did growing up and as kids and our parents allowed us to do, I mean, child protective services would be there now. And I'm just trying to remember some of those ghost stories and how terrified we would be. And I know that half the people that I work with would never allow their kids to hear anything like that, but it was so rich and wonderful to me. You need to be be frightened. Don't you think that like, I do. I think so. I do. I think you look back on fairy tales and there's, there's often a lot of, Fright, or even more modern fairy tales. You look at the Chronicles of Narnia. I mean, Jadis is a terrifying villain who yeah. stabs a Christ-like figure to death in front of traumatized children. Like these aren't particularly soft books. And actually, I, I, I think you probably, I mean, they're <laughs> to sort of like loop the topic slightly. I remember my late grandparents used to take a house, uh, sort of up in the, the north coast of. Um, Northern Ireland. I only recently discovered that my childhood conception of time was was way off. I said, Mom, they, they used to take it for the whole summer, didn't they? And she said, no, they took it for two weeks. But obviously <laughs> to you, it seemed like, it, I was like blissful, brideshead, halcyon summer. Right. It, it was a cottage for two weeks. And, um, but they, but my, my, my grandmother owned a book stop, a book shop. And um, she used to have me read uh, aloud to her like Agatha Christie books and we would take turns reading a page and I'm sort of thinking back on I was 10 or 11 when she decided that that it was time for Murder in the Orient Express which is a, a grisly whodunit that centers <laughs> on revenge for the kidnapping of a child. It's so wonderful that, in that you find yeah. your through. You you learn how to problem solve, you learn how to uh, you know confront fears. I 
I think that that free way of making your way through art is mm-hmm. part of finding out who you are. And I don't want to be handheld as much. You know, Malcolm and I talk about the movies that we were allowed to see and the things that yeah. we were allowed to watch. And if we had questions about them, then we, you know, go to our parents and they would you know, talk to us about it or, you know, explain things or say, you know what, that one was inappropriate. But right. there was just something nice right. about being able to, you know, do all of that. Um, I like the idea of reading a page to each other. That's great. There's quite a bit in some of the the Poirot ones where he speaks French, or, you know, you have words for a 10-year-old that are um, like the Princess Dragomirov or Andreni, like some of the the surnames, the characters are, are, are difficult. But she was so good about if I stumbled but kind of got it close to right, she wouldn't correct me because she would sort of just let you keep going. But she was mm-hmm. the only time, funny that you're right, when you say um, that one wasn't appropriate. <laughs> she, uh, one night, she didn't realize, she didn't fully clock the, that we were watching <laughs> a TV movie about the Menendez brothers. Oh, yeah. um, I, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Until, until it was too late, she said, you know, you can sleep with me in your grandpa's room tonight because she looked over and I was like wider than the Shroud of Turin. I just looked, she said I looked absolutely traumatized uh, I, in a way that death and denial simply hadn't done it for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know there are a couple where I just kind of give myself a timeout where I'm like, yeah, I can't handle that. To this day, I've never seen The Exorcist. I can't handle horror based in religion. I just cannot deal with it. Hey, you are the only other. Same. First of all, no one else gets this. I should point out also, Rhea's Protestant. And I more or less slept with a rosary underneath my pillow for a year after the exorcism of Emily Rose. I could not believe I had been taken to see this. You just want to call the police on on the person who took you. Yeah. So, yeah, I could not deal when they, you know, I remember seeing the I've never seen the exorcist either, and I never will. It just absolutely. It's too much. Of course it's too much. I I think. That priest under the stop sign with at night looking at the house. I'm like, is that a priest in the dark looking at a house? Look, I'm going to stop you, Michelle. I live alone. If you keep going, I will be (laughs) driving back to my parents tonight. <laughs> I get it. Let's move on. Like, all right, bunnies and rainbows. <laughs> one of my friends, not religious at all, they're like, I don't see why you're scary. I'm like, you're going to piss the devil off. <laughs> and it's you not going to be you he comes after. You have just it's, gone inside it, my it's head. Gonna, it's gonna be it's gonna be me who won the Sunday school prize three years in a row as a kid. He's coming for me. Um, so I shouldn't say that. Oh, but, um, I, I, that's why we liked each other because yes, I understand that exactly. I cannot handle it. Else we weren't hammering religious icons into the door frame before we watched a movie. Yeah, yeah. like this is just too much. Just <laughs> No, you're absolutely right. And even when I went to see The Passion of the Christ and it opened with the, uh, when I realized it was a shot of the devil, I was like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> what, what have I done? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I got it. I do get it. I also, I mean, I was, the other thing about to, sort of that historical fiction does as well is that I think it gets away with a lot more violence. Like I re, there yeah. was, um, 
the Wilbur Smith novels, these sort of like doorstopper novels, mm-hmm. he wrote one called River God that's set in, I think, the, the tail end of the Middle Kingdom in ancient Egypt. And there's, there's, there, there are, I don't know why one wasn't enough, um, two incredibly graphic castration scenes. And oh, wow. there's there's a bit where they kind of do like a mystery play about the the martyrdom of the god Osiris, and I reread it recently, or maybe a couple of years ago. Why, why at fourteen did I not stop at this point? Where you know he they like kind of opium drug a prisoner who they get to play Osiris and they hack him apart on stage. <laughs> And it just, and then I remembered, I just skipped it. I just, if it was going on too long, I kind of skipped through it. And I think it's a little bit like your Scottish gymnast. There were certain certain things I just thought, oh, this is, because I was like, I don't remember the flaying of this guy. And I think actually probably violence was the thing. Like if it was really, really graphic, I just, if it went on for too long, I skipped it. Yeah, there was a a book that I stumbled on when I was, um, I think I was in high school and I can't remember the topic, but it was set in, in um, set with the Aztecs and it had the human sacrifices and it just traumatized yeah. me. I was like, I, yeah, this is, this is where I cannot go. The yeah. violence was so explicit and so detailed and it lingered for so long that I just, it just gave me a, you know, pit in my stomach. So there are like, yeah. there are third rails in reading that sometimes I see, Oh yeah, this, this is going to include something that I can't handle. And then I go on, but I'm saying that to say, I don't want warnings in novels. I want to find that out myself. I, you know, like, yeah, me. I get that. I get that actually. Yeah. That's a good, well, all, because you do get to your, just to your previous point about you kind of start to learn yourself. Yeah. I mean, you know, and sometimes, I mean, there was a novel that I was sent to, uh, this is a while ago, and it was just a little bit too close to to it wasn't anything traumatic it was just a little bit too close to a, a kind of romance i had had and i was like i actually don't want to read this yeah, yeah. and you know really quickly there was just a few sentences where i was like oh this is probably still not for me um maybe maybe in a year or so when i went back a year later and loved it but you can i think as if you're a regular reader you start to get a sense quite quickly of what book is going to sit with you in a good mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. I think um, so too. And then there's some authors that I know, yeah, they're that person's not for right now. I'm in too fragile hmm. state of mind. So there are like, you know, some subjects, some writers that I just have to take my time with, but yes. I feel like that's for me to find out, you know? So I think that there's yeah. been an increase and if it's, if it's there, then it's, then it's necessary. And I appreciate that, mm-hmm. but I've seen such an increase. And, in, you know, at the beginning of the book, this um, novel has blank, blank, and blank in it as a warning. So it kind of gives away some of the twists and turns and the right. stories in that warning. Um, and so I just, I'm not quite sure about that. I'm not quite sure about that. And I feel like that maybe is necessary if it's younger readers, but for right. adult readers, I feel like maybe we could find our own way. And mm. I just picked up whatever was interesting to me in the library. And because I grew up in in a, in a very nice small town, you know, I was able to 
ride my book or my bike on my own to the mm. library to get books. So I would pick up what was interesting. And it was sometimes I'd go into the adult section, sometimes the kids section. And once in a while, the librarian was like, why don't we leave this one until your mom comes back with you? You know, because they oh, knew good. something that I didn't know, but not in a, not in a horrible way, but just maybe she didn't want to get yelled at by my mom. Sure. Um, sure. And I so, mean, that's, that's a smart move yeah. um, from a librarian because I'm sure they have some, some parents who have come in and said, what on earth were you thinking? Yeah, um, yeah. And then after a while, my mom was like, Shell could read what she wants. And, um, and then, you know, there was no more of that. Right. And the town was small enough that they all knew me or my sisters going in and out. But um, that's how we talked about this. That's how my sister became obsessed with the Titanic. Well, yeah. I mean, actually, that's, I think you said that at that first lunch, actually, when, you, you know, you, that your sister had such a big interest in in the Titanic. Oh, like, she was, she wanted to watch everything, mm-hmm. read everything about it. My dad would look for articles for her. And, you know, at the library, they would know, oh, this came in. And so she just gobbled it up, but she was really little. And it was, she was just obsessed with it. Yeah. And then one day my dad asked, you know, why do you why do you like this subject so much? And she goes, oh, I was one of the people in the water. And she was like... <laughs> And she was like seven. <laughs> and because it was, you know, 70s parenting, my dad just was like with a cigarette. Oh, OK, that's cool. You know, you, you just take your your kids at face value and no one dives too deep. And he was like, you think so, Lisa? She goes, oh, yeah, I know. So it was really cold. I was one of those people. So I like to read about, you know, what actually a little backstory happened. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, so she was reincarnated from the one before a seven-year-old to say that. <laughs> yeah. And also I, I love that that rather than like move on in her new life, she's like, I would really love some answers. <laughs> yes. Yeah. How did all of that happen? <laughs> because because yeah. as far as I was concerned, I was heading for a Memorial Day jolly in New York. <laughs> right, right, right. And this went terribly wrong. And she um so yeah, White whole- Starline, you're looking at a Yelp disaster <laughs> coming your way. Yes. <laughs> I've been waiting centuries, but she's, you know, so she still has that. So um, whenever there's anything, she and I went to see Titanic together and she'd been waiting her entire life. Um, And that was really nice. We still talk about that, but yeah, I think that all of those things, when your mind just wandering all over the place, you wandering through the library and just pulling things off the shelf, who knows where that's going to take you? And I think that's the beauty of it. It's, it's an such a wonderful. Th- it's oh, that's this is something that I've been trying to explain to people about even research to kind of move slightly in a nonfiction um, direction on it. Is sometimes, of course, you know the books or the 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 articles that you you should be reading, but sometimes just going into a, a section of a particular time that you're maybe writing about or researching. And just seeing books that maybe aren't on other reading lists and they're on the shelves and they catch your eyes. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're seeing a fresh perspective or a forgotten perspective. It's such an incredibly, I mean, really for me, thrilling part of research. And there is nothing that will substitute that for a library. Yes, maybe in the increasing um, internetization of books and knowledge, you will be more easily, and that's a good thing, easily able to find books and academic papers that you are looking for, but mm-hmm. it's in libraries that you will find gems that you weren't looking for. Now, weren't you able to go to the Vatican? Did we talk about, was that? 
No, and I didn't go to the, the Vatican. Where did okay. I go? I went because we did talk. Which was the one that we talked? About? I went to the National Archives. Oh, um, and um, now I look like a fool who can't get into the Vatican. Um, <laughs> <laughs> did, didn't you go to the Vatican? No. Now I look some par. Um, <laughs> Oh, I think we talked about the letters, the Henry VIII letters. The Henry VIII, like yeah, and I actually do yeah. know some people who've gone to see them. And it, the Vatican is, yes, that was it. So I, I went to the National Archives and saw the um, the Catherine Hard papers are kept there. But the, Boleyn, the Henry VIII's love letters to Anne Boleyn, they were stolen, allegedly, by a partisan of Catherine of Aragon who sent them to the Vatican and, and, and they've stayed there. But they are incredibly strict about protocol mm-hmm. and who goes in and i think there there uh, this might have changed i think you needed letters from a parish priest for a while to, to kind of you know vouch for the fact that you weren't gonna um do any harm but i mean that that's it's one of the great ironies of, of british history that the love letters of henry VIII to anne boleyn are are in the vatican <laughs> that's it's, so fascinating yeah and so in those letters do you think that they um, it was talking about the break with the church and that's why, or was it well, more it, about the divorce or was the combination? Right. So it was kind of the spectacular own goal from the anti-Boleyn faction mm-hmm. because they were hoping to prove that Henry VIII's public much vaunted morality, that he didn't actually want to annul the marriage to his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, but he truly believed it was biblically unsound, was nonsense because he was privately committing adultery with uh, a courtier called Anne Boleyn. And in fact, what the letters ended up proving was that Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn weren't sleeping together and that they were famously, this is where we have the proof that she didn't want to have sex before they were married. And so, so in terms of, of the smoking gun that they hoped it was, they they shot themselves in the foot to extend and distend the metaphor. But it is, it's, it, it, you know, for me, actually, they're really interesting. I, I call them love letters for shorthand because that's what they're usually called. But I, I've never really thought of what Henry VIII felt for her as, as love in a, in a way that elevates the word love. You can see even here in these really early letters, I mean, we might call it love bombing today, but there's a lot of, I can't live without you, you're wonderful, anything you want, I will give to you. And then if she hasn't written back quickly enough, he gets quite angry and I hate myself for wanting you so much. There's a lot of this very cloying sentiment and it does come across, you have to remember this, the, 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 um, disparity in the power dynamic between them. And I think we have this idea, and Anne Boleyn was an extraordinarily capable woman, but she was also the subject of this king. Mm-hmm. And you you get a sense of just how tricky it was. And, 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 you know, she seems to have changed her mind about coming back to court at one point. And, and we don't have her reply, so this is inference, but he he's very upset. And the gist is, you promised you'd come back. And I said, you could bring your mother as a chaperone. What's the problem? And actually, I think it, it reveals, unless as long as she stopped looking at these with that pernicious 
dubious gift of hindsight. And if you haven't already decided to hate her or love him or vice versa, or, or, or you know, if you just read them mm-hmm. with the knowledge of, the, of that wider society, actually she does emerge as someone who was treading water. And that I don't think that, you know, this attention from him whilst flattering was necessarily something that was completely welcome to her. I think she probably was intelligent enough to realize that it was a bit of a poison chalice and that if they had a romance that that went sour, it could be really bad for her and her family. That's what I take from these letters. I mean, everyone interprets them differently, but mm-hmm. it, it's just such a... I mean, I felt the same way with the, the the servants' interrogation records that I looked at for the Catherine Howard biography. This... There's something very cathartic's not the right word, like apophatic, almost like you're you're emptying your um, present or your soul or something. I'm being very inarticulate. I apologize, but it's something like you you feel this breaking down of time. You can't. Mm. You feel that you you remember really vividly that these were people and that right. they they didn't know how this story was going to end. Oh, that's um, fascinating. What is the yeah. what is the most interesting rumor about Anne Boleyn and and Henry VIII or the Tudors that's kind of intrigued you? If you thought mm. this rumor is interesting enough to sustain an entire novel, like have you come across anything Ooh, in your research that? Yeah, that's a great so question. Like that, I love that. That's a really really great question. The reason why I love that in particular is there are certain rumors that are not, and because of the the evidence that wasn't kept and that was lost maybe in the Civil War of the 1640s or in the century since, there are rumours that there is simply insufficient evidence to sustain a non-fiction book, but there are definitely ones that are strong enough to sustain a novel. Um, ooh. ooh, there's there's um, potentially, this is a bit more of an obscure one, but the Earl of Ormond, James Butler, he was a very prominent Irish nobleman, in um, the 1540s. He actually was uh, very briefly betrothed to Anne Boleyn when they were quite young. Mm -hmm. But he came to London and he died at a dinner party and 16 people at the at the meal got very sick and his servant who was sitting next to him died as as well and this theory that he was poisoned in order to make in order to to remove one of the, the the last bastions of the Anglo-Irish, uh, the sort of the the um the old Irish aristocracy, so that there could be a more complete English expansion into his oh, estate. Wow. I just think could be that idea of because That's because a good one. well because part of the thing is there's a lot of times where was it poison or was it re- you know incredible food poisoning that was possible at that time. What so. What were was it the Drummond sisters in Scotland that yes. were all poisoned? Yeah, yeah, and I think there are just. I mean, I also. I mean, I have this question saved for later. So actually, but I think there's such a. I would love to see more on 16th century Wales and Ireland and and Scotland before Mary Queen of Scots. I just think there are novels there that could be so engaging and so entertaining um, if they were done done well. Because I, because there's there is still a sense to kind of go back to those love letters with Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. I keep trying to tell people her leaving court and going to Hever Castle isn't a kind of coy, come hither, come get me, just because you can make it to Hever in 
a train ride from London. That's not how it worked then. It would have taken a very long time for him to, you know, it was not an easy trip. And I think I'm so interested in distance, Mm -hmm. in how long it took messages to get through. And, you know, that everything was this sort of game of convoluted whispers and you could be toasting Anne Boleyn's health in your mansion in Dublin and she'd been dead for a week in London. You know, right. th- this. I, I, right. there's something about, I'm just interested in journeys. I would love to see a novel about a long journey. I think that oh, would that, be, yeah, be incredible. That, that's really good. There's a, a mystery series um, set in um, Tudor times and it goes back and forth in, between Elizabeth one and Mary queen of Scots. And it's, um, Oh, Ursula Blanchard is the Ursula Blanchard. Okay. is the lead in the um in the series, but I'm blanking on the author's name. No, I I, I mean that's I mean for myself, I sort of forgot we were doing a podcast. I was like, don't worry, I'll Google it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Me too. This is such a great conversation. But she, the, her her character goes on so many journeys, and mm-hmm. she spends time, you know, because she's out solving mysteries and this and that. Sure. And she spends so much time on the journey that it's become a part of the series to me. And it is interesting because, you know, in the bodice rippers, they whip here and there and it's a paragraph and then they're in a new place, but you know, stopping. And then there's sometimes they have to, you know, sleep in the open or there's an end that's so dirty that they sleep in the stables and they just, she just really gets into the detail of all that. That's if I, if I did a historical novel, and I think actually one day I would love to, I would really love to, um, I, I would want to do something that involved traveling and journeys. And um, there, there's, there, were, there's, there were two things that I came across in reading that were rumors that I always thought had such potential for story. One was that her, uh, that Anne Boleyn's body was taken out of the um, tower and spirited away by who was her first love? Oh, Harry Percy. Yes. That his family took the, took her body and it's buried. And I guess there's a, 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 like a black, almost onyx looking monument somewhere that people think there's a church. I think, I think it's in Norfolk or somewhere. Yeah. I've heard, I mean, I think that, yeah, I've heard that they actually, um, I mean, we, that's one of those things that would just, that, see, you just wish Alexandre Dumas would do that because that would be such a good sort of Three Musketeers-ish story because it has all the ingredients of mm-hmm. chivalry and skullduggery. And, and what was the other one? Sorry. That one I think was so good because you just, you know, it, it, it could launch a fantasy novel, a new series, just the yeah. event itself is a book. There's so much potential story. Mm-hmm. And the, the other one, and I've looked for where I found it and I can't remember where I read it, but I wrote it down in a, um, in a journal was with Elizabeth one, where she angered her father so much that he made her crawl to the throne. She crawled across the whole room in front of, you know, all the, um, all the other nobles to get to him where he was sitting. And there was no explanation for what happened and why. And that's always just. So that's really interesting. Cause I think, I mean, you're that. So that is one of those moments where that might've come from like a Victorian or a Georgian. Ah. Um, because that, but so what they tend to do is they do tend to first, I mean, it, that almost, almost certainly didn't happen, but I would, 
this is just a bet I'm taking. That does probably spring from one of the great mysteries of young Elizabeth's life, mm-hmm. which is that around the final part of her father's reign. So at this point, he's married to his sixth wife, Catherine Parr. We do know that there that that he became very angry at her um, for some reason, and she was sent away from court for a while. So often, what will happen is Georgian and Victorian writers will add in an anecdote. So, but the thing is, we're talking about making a credible novel. And actually that, I mean, just that image is so harrowing and abusive and awful that it does, it it captures in a, in a way that I think novels and fiction can do it. They capture through a scene or an action, a wider truth about a relationship. And there is something about the, the total, Yes, absolute power Mm -hmm. that he had over his children's lives and particularly his daughter's lives. And you think that if if you're teaching a writing course and you're like, here's a rumor, here's something Mm -hmm. that's been out there and we don't know why. And then find another rumor and piece them together. And then you have possibly the start of the story. So did he find the the checkers ring (laughs) and was so angered by that, that that caused, you know, and then so those are two things that you you were on fire. <laughs> you know, I, no, do you know what's going to happen? One day right. we're going to be sitting together, and I'm like, "Did you see who won the Pulitzer? Hey, oh, it was the idea we came up with That's on the podcast. podcast. <laughs> It'll be a great idea. Here's your story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're not even mentioned in the thanks list." No, and that's the thing with um, where um, Elizabeth Gilbert writes her book about creativity and she talks about, um, you know, ideas coming to your house and staying for a while and then saying, ah, they're not doing anything with yeah. me. I'm going next door. And then someone, it you know, it lands in some other writer's or artist's house and then they're off and running to the races. And there was the really funny, um, Michael Jackson used to say he would wake up in the middle of the night because if he didn't, his ideas were going to Prince's house. <laughs> So it's kind of the same thing. So someone will hear the podcast and think, I'm writing that right now. She can write it in 50 years. I'm writing it today. Yeah, we we did it to ourselves. Like we just... We did. It's a good one. <laughs> it is a good one. Because also, I think that's, I mean, to, again, to look back, that's what Dumas does so well with The Three Musketeers. He takes mm-hmm. these, like, very, very tenuous historical ideas and he and he puts them in a smoothie. And he kind of, and he weaves them all together. So, you know, with The Three Musketeers, there is the historical fact of the Huguenot Rebellion. There's the fact that there, that at some point... The Duke of Buckingham was, as an English envoy to Paris, was considered a little bit overly familiar with Louis XIII's wife, Anne of Austria, who also had quite a strained relationship with his chief minister, Cardinal Richelieu, and that we do know that there was um, the, the royal bodyguard called the Musketeers. And he throws all this in and comes up with this, you know, dementedly good story. Right. Yeah, I you think know what? That, that weaving together that you just talked about uh, from Dumas is interesting. And that's what I think historical novelists and bodice rippers do so well. Yes. They take conjecture and these, you know, rumors and these what ifs and then just make a big pot boiling story. And for right. 
pure entertainment, you're not beating that because you're just swinging from one grand adventure or one love affair or one heartbreak to another. And it's a ride. And, you know, when I started um, just sort of breaking out of my reading patterns and, you know, reading uh, mysteries or Southern fiction Mm -hmm. or literature, whatever else, sometimes as I move through different genres, I would say, They've forgotten the joy. So there's a joy in those oh, big swashbuckling stories yes. that you could feel coming your way. It does it high art or not. And, you know, of course, there are literary writers that he can do that the same way. But there was something about the 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 single line from the stories being told as a child to my grandmother drawing me in to the big swashbuckling romance stories that they're all of one thing. And so I think that that's where the joy came for me in that kind of reading and still does because it's now comfort food. Well, that's, I mean, first of all, that is so true. That Just when you said they've forgotten the joy, I, I don't understand this. I don't understand it with movies either. And I'm probably showing myself out to be a bit of a Philistine here, but I don't understand. And first of all, you know, I mean, you know, from, from, our interactions. I love, uh, you know, and not uh, like the longer the series, the better. Fantastic. I, I'm not, I'm not critiquing length here at all. I don't understand why we elevate the idea of a book, of reading a book or watching a television series being work and that being a good thing. And the harder you have to work at it, the better that it is. Oh, and I, I, I'm, I agree. I'm, like, what happened to something delicious and and. Um, joyful. I mean, that was the perfect word. Perfect word. They've forgotten the joy. Um, the the last really good, like brilliant piece of historical fiction that I read, and I and I again, it's interesting because it has such a special place in my heart because of where I read it. It was a really wonderful holiday. It was the last holiday, unknowingly, before um, the pandemic. But it was the Song of Achilles by. Oh, Matt I Miller. love that. Oh. It's, it, it got to the point where I'm sure everyone else on holiday with me and they were, you know, they were, they're really good friends. I'm sure if I mentioned it to them one more time, I was going to get pushed <laughs> into the Caribbean and left there. Like it really was. And, but it, it's, it was, I, there's a photograph of me reading it in the pool, just standing up. I couldn't, <laughs> it was the last book that I really and truly could not put on. Oh, So I did the same thing and it was during the pandemic and I read um, um, Silence of the Girls by Mm -hmm. Pat Barker and then moved from that to um, Song of Achilles. And then there was one more. So I was just in this Trojan War world for, (laughs) um, you know, a couple of months and it was so wonderful. Those books, just reading them, I felt like I was completely immersed. And that's the beauty of finding something that sparks your interest. And then you go down the rabbit hole, you know, more books in that, in that genre. And it was just so fun. I'm trying to remember there was one more that I read in that time period. Um, Well, there's, there was, um, it was one of the most magical moments of my life just as a reader. I, I, I mean, I don't want to give away the ending. I know the, it, the story of Achilles has been in the public domain for 4,000 years, but, but still. Um, there is a sunset mentioned at the end, and I finished it just at sunset, and it was sort of the sun was sinking into the, the sea, and it was heart-stoppingly beautiful. And 
Madeline Miller and I, we're, we are at the same agency. And if I, it's really vital that I don't ever meet her for my professional credibility because <laughs> I will probably be banned from the office. Like I will probably just, I mean, I'll, I'll just be garbling nonsense at her about how good this book was. And it was the most, first of all, it had that sense of a journey that we talked about. It really yes, it did. did. It had the most extraordinary sense of place. And and it and I have this slightly um seasonal effective reading list where if I'm going somewhere hot, the books will only be set in hot climates. And if I am <laughs> going somewhere cold, Romanovs and Chivagos need only apply. And, uh, and, um, <laughs> and, um, um and so I had, and and so I was, you know, she creates such a sense of the Aegean and this world in which, and what she did that was so extraordinary is gods and goddesses and the entire pagan religion of ancient Greece is presented as completely true in the most yes. mundane, brilliant way. And it was, it had this sense of epic and a journey, but also it was when Patroclus is describing the depth of his love and the, oh, the God. It oh, God. Is, astonishing, isn't it? Yep. it? I mean, it, it, it really is. There were times where I would jolt almost at, at just how, at just how beautiful her, um, her, her words are and and her portrait of people and I think the the thing about the song of Achilles is it does have that joy even though it's set amongst war and terrible tragedy and, yeah. and particularly yeah. you know some of the the I mean I think alone the way she she dramatizes the isn't the um tragedy of Iphigenia it is just I mean Hor- I mean, it is really horrible how she does it. And it's such a horrible moment in, in Greek myth. But the book I read right after that was Gods of Jade and Shadow, which again presented the, the stories of gods, but it actually, it was the god of death comes back to Jazz Age, Mexico. And it really, that book lured me in by its cover. You know when people say never judge a book by its cover? Mm-hmm. This cover was so unbelievably beautiful. That I, I mean, I was like, this book could be empty inside. I'm still going to buy it. The the Again, it was such a good read because it had, it was a, it lent into this real um, sense of place and a journey, an epic journey. And it had, um, I'm not sure what the right word would be, but it had a certain playfulness, even though it was such mm-hmm. a... There was humor there. There was yes. a, a sense of very sly humor and you felt it in the writing and in the characters, which then made them feel very mm-hmm. real and very alive. Yes. You know, just and- a little aside, a little, you know, sly observation and it helped fill mm-hmm. them out in such a profound way. And that and that love, love story was so rich and pure. Yes. It just... It was so wonderful. Now I'm probably going to butcher her name, but the um, Silence of the Girls is telling that same story from the point of view of Brasisis. Really? Yes. Um, Yeah, I would. 
You have to read it. it I is- haven't read. I haven't read it. And I, do you know what? You are the second person whose opinion I would completely trust. Also, but I'm just going to apologize briefly to the listeners who have told us, told me, please stop recommending books. My house can't take it anymore. Um, I feel like I feel like I took your note and completely ignored it. In fact, did the opposite of what you asked me to do. Um, <laughs> I listened to Talking Tutors, um, the podcast, and yes, I great up- podcast isn't it? And I yeah. end up writing down so many, <laughs> so many books. And for a while, yeah. it was just like, you could click through and it was just right there on the page, but she stopped doing that in detail. And I guess it helped me a little bit, but there's sure. something, you know what it was about Achilles. It had that campfire feeling. It yes, had that feeling of yeah, a, a really it. good storyteller saying, Oh, come over here by the fire. I have something to tell you. Yes. And the fire's crackling and you're leaning in and you're just on every word. And I call them um, fireside books whenever I open a book and I get that feeling. And it usually Mm -hmm. happens almost immediately in that first chapter. Another one that was like that for me was... um, Oh, years ago when I read The Historian, the book about Dracula that I think her name is Elizabeth Kostova. I haven't read it. Again, I think... It was so good. And it had that Story same feeling. And then I started with Achilles and uh, Song of Achilles, the same thing. The Pat Barker book, the same thing. There's a couple historicals that are in my all-time favorite category that have that also. But yeah. it's just that that you just feel like you're in good hands with this yes. author. And do you know, yeah. actually, that the, the Mayan um book the novel gods of jade and shadow um sylvia marino garcia i haven't read is the the novelist i haven't read had the opportunity yet to read some of her other books but what she does in the novel there is a point where they go into shibalba the, the sort of the mayan land of the dead and she describes it in in a way that you almost do feel like you're listening around a, a campfire you're you're she describes the journey through the the underworld and the land of the dead in such a way that you 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 feel like you're being spoken to in a really really good sense. Do you have any periods of history you'd love to see more on from fiction, more fiction set in them? You know, I would love uh, Napoleon and Josephine. Oh, there's a good. I, I'm sorry. There's a good trilogy by um, by uh, Sandra. Oh, I love that. Yeah, oh, yeah. The trilogy. Her- yeah, she's. Mm-hmm. First of all, I think she's very good, a, a very good novelist. But the fact that they're all done in diary entries and kind of the, the coming from relative obscurity of Josephine right the way up. Yeah, I, th- I mean, actually, it's funny. There aren't that many on... on no, no. On and when they do have them, they se- they tend to focus more on him and yeah. the war. And I would love a little bit more about her. Mm. But there's also his first fiance, Desiree Clary. Yes, the um, queen of the, who became the queen of uh, Sweden. Yes, yes, that's yeah. right. And her that's still ha- uh, called after their house, her husband, who was Napoleon's general. But oh, Bernadotte, two- Bernadotte. That's, yeah, yes, it is. It's, yes. the, it's um, the, yes, the Swedish royal family have a, the, the most French surname in, in, right. in the Bernadottes because, yes. of, because of him. Yeah. Yes. And that, I, the, so there were two novels that I came across that, um, that had her. And then I think we talked about this before because there's only one or maybe two novels, but Sissy, the Empress, yes. I think that's so um, yep. interesting. And yep. then who, there was someone else that I was thinking about. Um, 
Her and her, actually, her and her cousin Ludwig II, the sort of the Swan King who built Neuschweinstein Castle. I just think there is, there is. I think Austria and Bavaria are sort of untapped resources in English language novels because that we just they just aren't. Yes, you say there's one or two, and they're so right. rich. That sort of end of that twilight of a certain way of viewing the world and this, you know, obsession with the birth of psychology was happening and, uh, oh, it's just such an interesting time. Yeah, actually, CC would be a great one for there to be a a good series on. Yeah, and it's like, and it's, you know, whenever there's historical um, drama on TV, I'm all in and they always get really good ratings. But when you actually go and talk to the networks, they just, you know, put up the sign of the cross. Oh, we don't do historicals. Nobody watches them. They cost too much money. And then every time there's one on the air, they have a really good devoted audience and great numbers. This is where I think sometimes British networks, because there's a longer slightly longer traditional foot in British networks, sometimes they end up, you look at things like Downton Abbey or The Crown or even older ones like Brideshead Revisited that still mm-hmm, have mm-hmm. that still pull these people in. Uh, and I, I think that, I mean, for me, I would love, I have different ones I would love to see. I would really like to see someone like East. First of all, I should point out most monarchies I will read about. Uh, And I would love to see some novels uh, with some of the more like the East African monarchies, maybe Nubia or Madagascar's. There was a period in the Madagascan monarchy from the mid, sort of the 1860s. So let's say mid 19th century for about half a century afterwards, where it was just three Queens. There was um, Rasaharina, Ranavalona the second and Ranavalona the third. And sort of you there's just an extraordinary collision of sort of palace coups and tensions over um Ranavalona the second was particularly Christian. And then the 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 dimming in the end of, of the independence of Madagascar and the fall of the monarchy to French colonialism. I just think that that those three queens could be such a great trilogy. Uh, I'd love to see a bit of 17th century Russia, you know, before it modernized oh, yeah. And, yeah. and medieval Ireland, as I've said. So, yeah, East Africa, East Europe, any part of Ireland. <laughs> is, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. I think that there's so much um, going on now with all the streamers and all the places mm. that need content. Yeah. That- for the first time, all of these, you know, untold stories really have a chance of being made. Absolutely. Because everyone's looking for something new and, you know, you go in and you pitch, oh, I'd love to do, um, you know, a show set in the Harlem Renaissance. And everyone's like, well, we have five of those in development. So some people just kind of keep going over the same territory, but there's just so many out there that would make for really good viewing. Did you, I I love the way that they handled um, Catherine the Great on Hulu. It was just so fresh. Mm-hmm. Did you see that? It was, yeah. And actually, do you know, it was, um, is it Elle Fanning plays her? And it's mm-hmm. the, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it was interesting because what we had was a sort of anarchic comedy with the Great. And then they also had the HBO series with Helen Mirren. And you had the two completely contrasting styles of historical fiction. And actually, right. I, I think what the Great did really well is that you can't in any what people sometimes with historical fiction and there's that you know it's a, it's a big debate about you know what's acceptable or what's sort of morally justifiable inaccuracies and actually what I tend to find is that people get a lot angrier when it shows that have 
presented themselves as being more accurate than not. They don't exactly. give themselves that leeway. You know, you can see it particularly with things that you know, people can get very, I mean, part of that's because some of these people are still alive, but people can, you know, push back on the crown a bit when they think it's, it's because it's, it, you know, it looks so, mm-hmm. um, uh, accurate. Whereas with something like the grit, where it's you know it's closer to Blackadder, it's this sort of like caperous, right, right, rock, and, the, and no one is looking at it thinking that this is right. what happened in 1760s Russia. And actually, that I think is it's is one of its strengths. You know, it's it's almost like Shakespeare or farce. Yes, it's something you know, and that I think, or the Scarlet Pimpernel or something. It, it's something that you just know is based on. Well, it is. It's a comedy, actually. Some of yeah. it's really, really, really funny. Oh, my God. Screaming funny. Yeah. I mean, it was just so great. And, you know, I've, I've referenced Malcolm a couple of times, but that's not his jam at all. And he sat and watched the whole thing with me because I was maybe on episode two and he could hear me laughing in the other room. And he happened <laughs> to walk in on a really funny moment. He's like, what is this? And I was like, it's about Catherine yeah. the Great and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I'll start over if you're if you want to try it. And so he ended up loving it. And we're hoping that there's a season two, but it was just so fresh and so well done, you know, but I'm there for all of it. And I think that I understand why some of the choices are made just because, you know, you're dealing with a mass audience. Can it be frustrating? Mm -hmm. Yes. But I think I'm a little bit more forgiving and I watched all of the tutors and we know that that's not what Henry looked like, even when he was a young, handsome prince, but there was just so much fun because I was looking at it like a soap. And I just thought Natalie right. Dormer was beyond, oh. beyond as Anne Boleyn. I loved her. She, by the way, is such, if you can read um, some of her interviews about she yeah. to Michael Hurst and she'd done all this research and she is, her performance as Anne Boleyn is such a testament to what an actor who really cares about the part can do mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and what mm-hmm. they can bring, give to the, the, the writer in terms of, um, confidence that you can throw really difficult storylines at this person, and they're gonna they're gonna live up to it. I just think Thank she, you. I really do think she was an extraordinary Amberlynn, and that is not an easy part. No, no, and uh, it's just like, and she's one of the characters in history that people are, you know are obsessed with and have a deep obsession for and really strong opinions. And I'd gone to um England solo. I can't remember when it was, but I had gone to see Wolf Hall and I was by myself and, you know, was divided over two yeah. nights. And I was, <laughs> I was sitting next to this um, very, very elegant elderly gentleman. And <laughs> I just thought that, that, I don't know. I thought it was a harsh depiction of Anne. And so it is, it the, is a hard, it is yes. harsh. Yeah, it is. And at the intermission, he asked me about it. And, um, and I said that, and he goes, really, really, you Americans really seem to like her. <laughs> That was such yeah. a funny response. <laughs> that's like, that's well, the, that's yeah. a very English response. <laughs> yes. It's um, well, it's yeah, it, it was actually. I think it. That's I do think Wolf Hall. I completely. I've maybe talked about this before. Actually, I do think she is um pretty consistently unlikable throughout it. She's quite cold. And yeah, there's yeah. not a lot of there's not a lot of the charm that I think I saw. I actually that's so funny. I saw Wolf Hall in New York, but um, <laughs> <laughs> we just switched. Um, I uh, yeah, I am funny. I have a slight rule when I am working on a, a 
historical topics, I try not to engage too much with any sort of fiction about it for a while mm-hmm. beforehand, just because I think if it if it is really well written, an image can come into your head and then you have to push that out of the way. And I just think you need to be totally led by the documents. And so I was, when I saw it on Broadway, I was working on Young and Damned and Fair and I decided, even though Catherine Hard's not in it, I decided not to see Bring Up the Bodies, which was the, the second half of it. I just saw the first one because I thought beheading a queen too close to where right. I to where I'm going. Right. So, I, so right. I went I went to see the matinee, and one of the one of the ushers said to me, um, "We got to talking afterwards, and she she said, what do you do?'" And sometimes I I I just I I I still haven't cracked the code. My friend Nina gets very annoyed at me because she corrects me because but I I have not found the way to say I'm a writer or I'm a mm-hmm. historian without sounding like a bit of an imbecile. <laughs> so either like incredibly arrogant or wildly unemployed. And <laughs> so I just say, oh, I I, I work in publishing. And then they ask what part. <laughs> You're like, great. Um, Accounts receivable. <laughs> so no one ever asked you to read their manuscript. Yeah. Um, and, um, but she said, well, you know that um, she wasn't as much of a bitch as she is in this. And I said, no, I do. I do. Uh, yeah, I think she was probably a bit nicer. And she was like, I, I mean, she, and she funnily, she said, I, I, I love Anne Boleyn. And that, and that was just such an interesting moment. You know, there we were in mm-hmm. New York, a city that obviously she never visited. She has no connection to thousands of miles away and hundreds of years away from where she died. And it just, to me, was actually a really nice moment of, of the, to bring it back, the, the power of a story and, yeah. and of history. And that this woman who died in 1536 was being talked about in a in a really fun, honest, conversational way, hundreds of years after she died. I that that to me is so was, fascinating. That is it? so fascinating that we could still, after all this time, have opinions and debate and yeah. and you know and feel strongly about something that happened so long ago. And it's you know all the reading that you do and another little piece is uncovered. I saw that they that the um it was an article that my mother-in-law sent me yesterday about the message that and the names that were written in her book of hours that are at yes. the castle yes this so actually um kate who did that is going to be a guest in season two oh. uh, of this first of all she's just the most she's really erudite this is actually this is new new research this is properly new groundbreaking stuff she did it for her postgraduate uh, dissertation i'm really excited just to sit down and talk to her and she's just one of those people that I suppose you probably get this as well. I mean, we in both our industries, sometimes you, you spot someone and you think, I know that you have a gift mm-hmm. of your knowledge to, to give to the world. Mm-hmm. And I do think that with Kate, I think that that research, sometimes it takes a, a lot of courage and precision of thought to return to a period in time where a person in time like Anne Boleyn of, of whom there is this sort of slight arch in the eyebrow from some people mm-hmm. in the in the in the the writing community saying well why her everything that we need to know has been done and actually sometimes I think when you look at really familiar periods or really familiar people it's when you realize how complex history is when you find something new and I yeah. think that that's what what she did with that that this and also it's just such a thrilling idea of these 
aristocratic or gentry-born women passing round a memory of Anne Boleyn and preserving it in this book. And obviously, you know, the book, the book of ours does allude to an older Christian belief sort of pre-Reformation in the idea of praying for the dead. And there's something almost, the fusing of preserving the memory of the dead. Margaret Atwood said, in the end, we will all become a story. And you see that moment where history starts, history and a, and a memory and a grief becomes a story. I just think it's incredible. Oh, it's, it's so fascinating. And that's, again, that could support an entire novel. Yes. Like just that finding what it means, who found it, who were these women, how did they hide it? Why did they hide it? I mean, you know, you'd go on and on. When I did a, I taught a writing class to, um, to young students years ago, and I would bring in like a really evocative photo or something like that, or Mm -hmm. a, a little tiny footnote that was a piece of something else and just present it and then go run wild and you get 30 different versions. And so 30 different people taking that and the kids loved it because it was just free writing, free flowing. And, you know, sometimes I'd get a song back. Sometimes, you know, there was an entire story. Sometimes there was a dialogue between two and they just, it just seemed to crack open ideas, but that article and that finding is something that I would pass out to the students and think, what do you think happened here? Well, that's, I mean, first of all, again, I just want to say um, to whoever is writing this novel that uh, <laughs> it's Michelle so Trumbull Spellman and Gareth Russell, all we want is a shout out in the acknowledgements. <laughs> that's it. That's all we ask for. That's all we ask. Um, so now, what is your, okay, so two questions I sure. have for you. What is your, fav- your favorite historical novel of all time? And is there a Ooh. historical series that you think would make a could be updated in an awesome way right now? Mm, those are two very good questions. Um, which is, and I said that in a slow way because I'm trying to figure out my answer. <laughs> um, well, I mean, we've covered it. I have to say the song of Achilles really did blow my mind. And it mm-hmm. it was um I truly think the most extraordinary gift of a of an author in fiction is being able to present love well. I think that that it, it, it's mm-hmm. such a protean phenomenon within us and and she did it. It was that addling or consuming love and that sense of um, the extraordinary. There are others that I, I mean, probably my favorite novel of all time is The Leopard by oh, yeah. um, Giuseppe Tomasi, the Prince of Lampedusa. And it's his only novel. And it was written in the 1950s. It's set in the 1860s. And it's about a Sicilian aristocratic family who lived through the summer of Italian unification. And it, it, it the, it made me want to visit Sicily. I, I still had, I was planning to go and then um, Corona had different ideas, but um, uh, God willing, I will get there. But the, the omnipresence of Catholicism and heat and um, the, the landscape of Sicily, it's just the, it's the most exquisite book. In fact, to, I, I was, I was uh, stuck on a on an airplane in on the tarmac of Miami Airport coming back from a leg of my US book tour when I finished it. And there's a epilogue. And uh, we were stuck there for about 90 minutes. And I there's it's nothing happens apart from sort of an, an internal monologue, monologue of one of the, the main characters. 
And a very nice American airline stewardess came over and said, are you okay? (laughs) Because I gasped. I went, (gasps) as if if Conchetta was speaking to me. Conchetta, come on. But but it really, it meant so much to me that, that it felt like a personal revelation. So the leopard and the song of Achilles are my favorite. I'm I'm actually reading a book at the minute. Sharon K. Penman, very sadly, was a historical novelist. That, that oh, to, yeah, her that, her book is my that's one of my all time favorites. Sun and Splendor. See, I haven't read Sun and Splendor yet. Oh. And I think I need to. Um, oh, I'm reading when so she passed away recently. Very sadly, she you know she published these. I mean, when I say doorstoppers, they are colossal books. The one mm-hmm. I'm reading at the minute. When Christ and His Saints Slept is 909 pages long. And and certainly there are bits where I think this kind of feels like a, a different novel. But reading it, I thought, my goodness. it's it, So When Christ and His Saints Slept is actually a quote from a, a 12th century chronicle. It was about a civil war called the Anarchy that happened in England in the 1130s and 1140s and a little bit into the 1150s uh, between uh, King Stephen and his cousin Maud over the succession to the English throne. And Maud mm-hmm. had been picked by her father and half the barons supported her because she'd been picked by her late father, the king. The other half picked back to Stephen because he was her cousin and a man. And it's it, the sense of the medieval period is really there. There is a sense of kind of being around the fireplace. She does get the, the journeys in. And it's so long that I, when I was reading it, I thought this could be like a Game of Thrones length series. Like really, yeah, you could yeah. split it up. And yeah. it has all of that. And these really intriguing characters. I don't know if you've noticed this. I, uh, it's something I ruminated on a bit. Sometimes with novels, the you know big novels, the lead character's kind of a dud. Mm-hmm. Like everyone around them, all the satellites are fascinating, but the sun at the center is just a ball of hot air. Mm-hmm. And this is not the case here. Stephen is is basically, I mean, I'm being really reductive, but Stephen is essentially a very kind, chivalrous, easygoing man, too trusting, really essentially too nice to be king, although he does commit this act of treachery and sort of stealing it, the throne from um, Maud. Maud is much more, she's been raised in the imperial court in Germany. She's much colder, but heroic and courageous and such an interesting mix of characters that I did feel like I could watch this for seasons at a time. So to the first question, the leopard and the song of Achilles, and to the third, when Christ and has since slept. What about you? Um, Sun and Splendor, which I thought was so, so, so great. I loved it. I, I hate it when that book ended. It was so wonderful. Oh, such a great and then feeling. the other one that's an all-timer for me is Catherine by Anya Seton. That one, do you know, I, this is, this is, I might get my history geek card taken away from me. I haven't read that. And everyone, oh. I, everyone, I, who I say that to, who has read it, says read it. So maybe that should be my one of my 2021 goals to read that. Oh, either one of those. Just so great. It's like yeah. I'm trying to put enough distance between the two so that I can, um, you know, go back in and read right. it fresh yeah, yeah, yeah. in a couple of years. But yeah, those two are, those, those, are, those are two of my favorites. They have crazy fan bases. Yeah, they do. Yeah. 
Well, they uh, when I talk about those to um, anyone who reads in this arena, they're always very exciting. Forgive me if you hear shouting in the background. Malcolm is also on a Zoom and he's, <laughs> that's he okay. has a very deep, booming voice. <laughs> well, there was, a, there was a motorbike that went past and my <laughs> um, psychotic dishwasher finished. And it sounds like it's announcing the start of the purge when it's finished. So um, if that's being picked up, listeners, you... Um, you know why we um, were actually going to see each other until the world imploded again yes. because I was traveling out there the first week in September, but now it looks like everything's shutting down again. It's uh, it's that that's I know because I it's just I, I keep clinging. I'm such a anytime I don't know if you've ever done the Pris questionnaire, but anytime I've done it twice um, for <laughs> various ridiculous writer reasons, but I've never changed the answer on what my favorite virtue is, which is hope. And I, <laughs> I, I, you know, and I, I am now, I was always, I always loved hope, but uh, I am now clinging to hope like a really needy ex. And <laughs> I did, it is both my favorite virtue and my life raft. And I, I'm trying to, to, to cling to the hope that, that this will make life sweeter and we will appreciate, you know, seeing each other, seeing everyone again and, and, and seeing the world and seeing plays. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm hopeful of. Me I too. Can't. I can't wait. I was so excited and we had an apartment rented in Paris for two weeks that we've oh. been push, pushing now for a year and a half. Right. So right now we had to push it again to spring. So I was just going to take a quick little jump by myself and mm. then, um, and, uh, and see a few friends and go to a couple of places. And then I got an advisory from air France and they're just like, not so fast, Missy. So. <laughs> <laughs> I did, you know, I had um, a really dear friend of mine. She's actually just moved back. Um, she was out West for a while. She's gone back East. Um, she's uh, from New York originally, but she had this glorious honeymoon traveling through Scotland. Oh. And she was um, going to retrace their journey. You know, she, I mean, at this point, I don't know what the dates were. They've changed many times, but... I think when we see each other again in Scotland, for me, that will be, will be the end of this. I think if yeah. that makes sense, like it, it, there's, there's certain things where, and look, this might be something that we have to, to learn to live with, but I don't think we'll be living like this forever. I just don't think that's the way humans are, are, we're, we're, we're a hardy bunch. I'm right there with you with the hope. Okay. So yeah. maybe our hope can fuel this thing to a better place. Yes. Yeah. Either that or we're, either <laughs> or that, we're, or we're just going to be eating, <laughs> eating food that brings back our childhood, right? Uh, <laughs> stuffing it into our faces while reading yeah. books that we should never have been allowed to read in our right. childhood. So, well, I think that, I mean, you know, we've wrapped that up nicely. So Michelle, I just want to thank you so much for coming by Single Malt History. This is such a, I love this talk. I, I realize it has just been a conversation, but hopefully, <laughs> um, both, uh, I'm sorry and you're welcome, listeners, whichever one you feel the need to take from this. But I hope it's been, I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think talking about food and stories are pretty much the, the two things that give me sustenance. All right. So one day we will all see each other. Well, with that, uh, I'd like to thank my guests for this first season 
Our single malt history. Julie Cook, Dr. Lauren Mackay, actress Charlotte Hope, novelist and TV presenter AJ West, Dr. Nicola Tallis, Leander Delisle, Dr. Nikki Clark, and the wonderful Nichelle Tramble Spellman, who of course she just heard. I'd also like to thank the actors who lent their time to bringing to life the words of those who sailed on the Titanic for our series in April. Killam Carraher, Joanne Doody, Peter Evangelista, Deborah Hill, Rebecca Lenehan, Marianne McGuire, Ashley Montgomery and Paul Stores. My dear friend Claire Handley not only designed the posters for my play Say You'll Remember Me when in the before times theatres were open, but she also did the artwork for this podcast with minimal, slightly garbled adjectives being flung her way by me. Lastly, and perhaps most importantly, I'd like to thank you for your support, your kind words, your encouragement. This was something which I wasn't sure I'd be any good at. It's always a learning curve, life is. And you've been wonderful. So thank you very much from Single Malt History with Gareth Russell, and I will see you in September. Thank you. Mm-hmm.